Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew, a little slower paced than I anticipated, but there's just so much good stuff in here. And the passages, some of them that we're going to look at tonight, some, we get into some really interesting things, so been looking forward to it. Chapter begins with John the Baptist being beheaded, which really in some ways kicked off Jesus' extensive ministry. And it says in verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. He was hearing about basically him doing all the miracles and he was really starting to get a, a following. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him. And then it goes on to say how Herod had John the Baptist killed. It reads sort of funny because it sounds like he's saying, this is John the Baptist and then it tells John the Baptist died after that, but it's really a flashback because Herod had already done what proceeds in the next, you know, 10 verses or so. He had already had John the Baptist killed, but now, right after he was killed, Herod was so superstitious that he, as he heard what they were saying about Jesus, similar things that they had said about John the Baptist, he started worrying that, that John the Baptist had reincarnated. Um, Later on, we're going to see when Jesus asked the disciples who people say that he is, there are people who had similar ideas about him. And you'd think, how can they think that if they're just about the same age? But sometimes the superstitious beliefs that they had in those days weren't just that, that you would be reincarnated and be reborn as someone else, but they actually believed that a person who died could then kind of take possession over a person who's living. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, he was John the Baptist reincarnated, but actually his idea might have been that he was sort of possessed by John the Baptist. Either way, really stupid, but Herod was no genius. Um, but then it goes on to tell the story of how he had put John the Baptist in prison because of Herodias. Now, Herod's brother, Philip, um, the Tetrarch, had a wife named Herodias, and, and Herod had actually taken her as his live-in girlfriend. So he took on his brother's wife and was living with her as husband and wife. And, and so uh, John the Baptist had confronted him in verse 4 and said, it's not lawful for you to have her. This is wrong. He spoke up. Herod was a major politician. Everything he did was to please the people. John the Baptist, not a politician, not very politically correct, walked right in and confronted Herod with what he had done. And so he got put into prison. And it says that in verse 5, he wanted to put him to death. But he was afraid of the people because they thought he was a prophet. But it, when Herod's birthday was celebrated and, and Herodias' daughter danced before them and, and pleased Herod, he said, okay, I'll give you whatever you want. And her mom had already told her, if he asks what you want for Christmas, tell him John the Baptist's head on a platter. <laughs> really odd. Not that unusual in those days. It was a sick, it was definitely a sick world. Sometimes we think that our world nowadays has the corner on weirdness, but there was plenty of weirdness back in those days. And so here this girl, her mom had said, hey, if Herod ever asks you for, you know, offers you a wish, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so that's what she said. And 
The king was sorry. Now, he had wanted to put him to death, but he's going, this is pretty bizarre. But he said, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So here on the one hand, he wanted to kill John the Baptist, but he didn't do it because he was worried what the other people would think. But now he didn't really want to behead him and bring his head into a party on a plate, but he was afraid of going back on his word. The people had heard it. So like a true politician, flip-flopping back and forth, he went ahead and did it. So he had John beheaded. And in verse 11, his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Weird family. Then his disciples came and took away the body. John's disciples, that is, and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. He knew, I mean, right now in this frenzy that's going on, he'd be next, obviously, it, with knowing that John the Baptist had been killed, realizing that he'd probably come after him. It wasn't like Jesus was afraid. It was that his hour hadn't come yet. It wasn't time for him to be killed. This wasn't the way it was supposed to happen. And so he headed out into a private place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he didn't say, get these people out of here, let's go hide, I'm going to put on a disguise. I, you know, he, it says he was moved with compassion as he looked on them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. No fast food restaurants or anything. It's getting late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, well, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. He had them sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves and fish and he looked up to heaven and he blessed them and he broke it. And he gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides, besides women and children. Interestingly, the feeding of the 5,000, certainly an amazing miracle. And, you know, there have been people who have said that, well, what it was, we know, I think, from Mark that this little boy had five loaves and two fishes, and he offered them, and the multitude was so touched by his generosity that they all started pulling out all their picnics, and there was plenty of food for everyone once they all shared. But that's really not a miracle. That real, I mean, maybe it, it is a small miracle, but this is a big deal. How many people ate orderly? The disciples passing out all the food, not the people passing out the food. This is the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels, by the way. Interesting. Only one miracle. It's a, this is a big one. This is amazing that Jesus could take a little bit of you know, bread and a little bit of fish, and as he broke it, it multiplied. And all these baskets left over afterwards, that means they didn't just snack. They ate until they were plenty full. And then all these doggy you know, bags afterwards of all the extra food that was there because of this amazing miracle. And I, you know, a couple of ideas pop to mind as I think of this. I, you, know, you look at the disciples, and they were feeling like all we have is a little bit. There's no way we can do this. But... They wanted to send the people away. However, you know, Jesus' perspective is, no, don't send the people away. You don't understand what I can do with a little bit. And I think today, 
all too often in, in the churches. Our response, our reaction to seeing great need and us not having much to do with it is to say, well, send them away. Send the people, send the multitudes off you know, to professional counselors, send them to the government for help, send them to other agencies, and pushing people away rather than to say, we have a need. First, let's go to the Lord. Let's see if he can take what we have and make something out of it. Understand this, whatever God has given to you, whatever it is that you have, it may not seem like it's enough to do something significant, but he doesn't need much. Five loaves, two fishes fed not 5,000 people. When you add the women and children, probably easily 15,000 people ate from five loaves and two fishes. So what has God given you? What do you have? Do you look at it and go, sorry, I can't help? Do you see ministry opportunities? And whenever you hear of some ministry opportunity, just go, oh, no, I can't do that. I don't, I don't have enough. There were many people that God used amazingly who thought they didn't have enough. I think of Moses when God called him and him saying, I have a, a stuttering problem. I have a speech impediment. There's, there's no way I can do this. Besides that, I have enemies in Egypt. Might not be a good place for me to go back to even 40 years after I've left. And yet God used him to be one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. And on and on, David as a little boy with a slingshot and a few rocks slaying Goliath and beginning to see God using him in such an amazing way. Whatever you have, you may not have much. You may not think it's much. Five loaves, two fishes, whatever. Jesus can multiply it. And when you see needs, you don't have to send it away. You don't have to say, okay, I see that need. I hear that problem, but I, I can't do anything for it. I know there are people who are hurting out there. I know there are people who need some help, but I don't know what to say. So just avoid it and dodge it and look the other way. No, when God places upon your heart a compassion, when he works within your heart and you care about something, then he is going to give you the resources and he'll take what resources you have and multiply them so that he can bless others through you. The other thing that I love in the picture of this story is that Jesus broke the bread and the fish and it was the disciples' job to hand it out. Now, you'd think, oh, the apostles, as important as they are, well, they shouldn't be serving food. And yet, really, when you think about it, that's the job of every one of us, to take the bread of life and to offer it to people who are hungry. We're all waiters. We're all deacons. We're all servants. That's what he's called us to do. And as he gives to us, we're responsible to give to others. And really, it's not, we're not the chef. We're just the, the waiter. All we do is take what he has done, take what he has given us, and hand it to someone else. Not real complicated. Not really difficult, usually. It's just being a messenger, and that's what he's called all of us to do, and even as he sent the disciples out to serve. And you say, but wait a minute, you know, Acts chapter 6, you know, the apostles ended up picking deacons in order to divide up the food among the Hellenistic women who, who needed food. And so they said, the apostles need to devote ourselves to, you know, prayer and teaching of the word, and so you, you guys end up serving the food. But you look at the qualifications for deacons, and it was the same kind of qualifications that you'd have for the elders and the pastors. And not only that, 
First thing you see, the, one of the, the first deacons that was chosen, a guy whose job was to pass out food, he ended up preaching this incredible sermon. Stephen, he got stoned for it. He was killed for it. But not only did he preach this powerful sermon that gives us incredible insights into the Old Testament. As we've been going through the Old Testament prior to this, we turned to his sermon many times to see all that you know he had illuminated from the Old Testament. So it was a waiter who preached this great message, but also as he was being stoned, as he looked up into heaven and he said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What a sight to see. And that's a guy who was picked as a waiter. That's what we all are, really. When it comes down to it, that's it. We're dishing it out. And it's the responsibility of every one of us to move through the multitudes and hand out bread and fish. Immediately, verse 22, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So he says, you guys go out on a boat, and I'm going to get rid of the people, and then I'll come around and meet you on the other side. And so when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He did it often. Evening came and he was still alone there. Jesus, we see him again and again and again getting alone with the Father. In this case, breaking up a multitude of people that wanted to hear from him. In this case, sending his disciples off in a boat to get rid of them so that he could get alone with God. And he did it, but the disciples got into some trouble. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, and it was tossed by the waves, for there was a contrary wind. And there, the Sea of Galilee, it's amazing. They can, it's as calm, it looks like Newport Bay. And then wind can come through some of those canyons and bring up 15, 20-foot breakers in the wind. It happens all of a sudden. You really don't see it coming. And that's what happened here, just a storm out of nowhere. And it says it was in the fourth watch of the night, which was from about 3 a.m. on until daybreak. So the night was just about past. Jesus, after having this kind of a day, still had been spending time with the Father all this time at night. He also got up early in the morning. So, you know, how did he do it? It was a priority to him. It was important to him. But now at this point, and a little side note, it's always interesting how Jesus shows up sometimes in that last watch of the night, right before when it seems like it's the darkest time of night. He's there, and they didn't know it, but Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost. Now you think, the disciples? They believed in ghosts? What? Well, I mean, it's easy to judge them and say, how couldn't they tell it was Jesus, or why would they think it's a ghost? And, and you think, oh, guy, this is superstitious. This is as goofy as Herod thinking that Jesus is John the Baptist. But think about it. You're out in the middle of the sea. It's dark. It's the middle of the night. You think you're about to die. Boats being tossed everywhere. Waves coming in over the side of the boat. And you see somebody walking on the water. That is a little suspicious. And you can see where they might think he was a ghost as... I heard somebody say one time, you know, I didn't believe in ghosts either until I saw one. And that's kind of where they were. It doesn't necessarily mean they were seeing ghosts everywhere. But if you see someone walking on the water, you might suspect it. Jesus immediately, well, they cried out for fear. You know, ah! And immediately Jesus spoke to them <laughs> and said, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Notice how he immediately, when they cried out to him, Boom, he was right on the scene. 
Hey guys, it's me, it's me. He didn't, he wasn't messing with them. Just happened to be walking across the sea to help him because he saw what was going on. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, who else is it that's going to be talking to them like that? But if it's really you, if I'm not dreaming or if we're not dead already, command me to come to you on the water. Now, a lot of times we pick on Peter and we dismiss him. We marginalize him and go, you know, Peter, he was always doubting. He was always saying dumb things, speaking up when he shouldn't. A little later, we're going to see Jesus calling him Satan. And, you know, so we think of him that way. Peter, the chicken, the wimp who, who denied Jesus three times as the cock was crowing. But you got to give him credit. As much as, oh, maybe our ideas, boy, that Peter, he was such a show off. Jesus is walking on the water, so he wants to walk on the water. He I'm sure the other disciples, they thought, what are you doing? And then when he started walking on the water, they were like, oh, man, why didn't we think of it? But you got to give him credit. The storm's still going on. Jesus is walking on the water. He's telling them it's okay. But he goes, I want to be with you, Jesus. And he was willing to step out of the boat. Nobody else did. Nobody else said, can we come too? They were just, okay, good, Peter, go for it. <laughs> and, you know, I think of William Carey, the great missionary, who said, who said, if you expect great, he said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And Peter was definitely a guy who would step out of the boat. And it's a question that we should all ask of ourselves once in a while. We find ourselves maybe in a little storm, Things aren't going so well, but we see Jesus working. We hear his voice as he's calling to us. Are we willing to step out of the boat? Are we so conservative that we'll just wait for him? We'll just kind of huddle up together. Peter was a guy who took a great risk, who took chances. He was not a big chicken. Oh, he had his moments of weakness, absolutely, and so do all of us. And yet, at the same time, when we see in this story, I mean, he's my hero in this that he's ready to step out of the boat and go walk. Now, anytime you step out of a boat into the water, you're taking a chance that you're gonna sink. Because walking on water is not a, just a normal phenomenon. And there may be times when God calls you to do something that sounds about as sensible as stepping out of a boat and walking on water. But God help us if we ever get to the point where we won't ever do it, where we won't take a chance because we're afraid that this may not work out. But Jesus, remember, he heard from Jesus, and Jesus said, okay, come on, and so he did. But I just want you to remember, a time, if there's a time when Jesus tells you to come, don't, like, test the water. Don't just stick your toe in it. Don't look around for a life vest. Just go for it. The worst thing that's going to happen is you'll sink. He'll pull you out. That's what happened to Peter. But Peter began walking. You know the story. He took his eyes off Jesus, looked at the waves. You know, maybe he was, as long as he was looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water just fine. But maybe then he was wondering, I wonder if the disciples are looking at me. Hey, guys, and turn around and say, look at me. Look at I am. And starts moonwalking and just, and all of a sudden, the point to get out of the boat to go to Jesus well, it was past, and now it was something else. It was about the waves. It was about the magic, whatever. There are times when God can call us to do something, and it's going okay, but be careful because if you take your eyes off Jesus, 
well, you're going to sink. It'll happen. And at first, you'll be scared to death, and you'll be amazed it's actually working. And then you get a little further, and you start to look at your circumstances. You start to look at the waves. You start to make sure that other people are watching you. Next thing you know, you're going to be sinking. I've seen it happen so many times. I've had it happen to me so many times. Step out for, with a bold move of faith and then, and then lose it and sink. But Jesus, as he saw Peter, and Peter prayed this great prayer. If Peter had prayed like most people pray, he would have been 20 feet under before he ever got the prayer out. Oh, Lord God, would you... Too late, blah, blah, blah. You know, his prayer was a great one. It was just, Lord, save me. He got right to the point. And Jesus immediately stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Isn't that funny? What about the other guys? Man, there's 11 guys back in the boat that weren't saying anything. I had the faith to get out there. And yet Jesus gave him a gentle rebuke as he pulled him up and he goes, you know, someday, Peter, you're going to remember this, and it's going to be pretty cool. You were the only one that walked on the water. And you and I, you're embarrassed, you're wet, but we went back to the boat together. But, Peter, you fell short. Why did you give up? It was going well. I was using you. It was, you were getting closer to me. And, but at least, Peter, you did cry out to me. And so I answered you, and I saved you. As soon as they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. No kidding. <laughs> Imagine, he's walking on the water. Then he gets Peter walking on the water. Then Peter sinks. He pulls him up. They come back into the boat chatting. As soon as they get in the boat, the storm just stops. And they said, Okay, we know who you are. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Amazing. At this point, and we remember the woman who was hemorrhaging, and she reached out and touched his garment and was healed on a different occasion. But here, anyone who touched him was healed. Now, there are a lot of people who claim to have healing ministries today, a lot of people who say they are gifted healers, and, and when they do, they talk about, you know, Jesus saying, you'll do greater works than these, meaning, you know, you'll do the, everything that I'm doing, and, and they'll tell you that, hey, today we can have just as much healing power as, you know, Jesus had by the same Spirit. And, but the fact is, I don't see anybody today I, people are being healed. God certainly heals people. But let's acknowledge it's not in quite the same way. These guys, the greatest faith healers you can find today, or the psychic healers, anybody else that claims they can heal, as far as that goes, doctors and chiropractors and herbalists and everyone else who claim they can fix everything, they don't get them all. And you certainly can't just touch their garment and be healed instantly. And it, I think it's almost blasphemous to take whatever people do today, where you might have thousands of people in an arena, and it's mainly about getting money from the people, but you have a few people that are perhaps healed, and it's very difficult to verify it, no medical evidence to really support it, and they're claiming that it's like Jesus healing people. 
I don't profess to understand exactly why God chose to heal so many people then and why today it's such an exception. I have my theories and I could go into that with you some other time. But the fact is, let's acknowledge when Jesus was walking on the earth, it was a whole different deal than anything you've seen today. Can you imagine? He's healing thousands of people and some of them just by touching his clothes. That's amazing. This was unique and, and incredible what Jesus was doing. And so then the scribes and Pharisees come after him again in chapter 15. And this time they're upset because the disciples weren't washing their hands. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now the concern here was not washing your hands to be sanitary. It wasn't like your disciples are so gross. You know, the idea was they had a tradition that there were certain kinds of washings that you would do before you would eat. And you'd hold your hands over a basin and pour the water over them from the top down. Then you'd hold them up and pour the water over the other way. And it was a little ritual that they came up with. Basically, as they said, it was tradition. And tradition is, uh, there are good things about traditions, and there are some really nice and beneficial traditions. But here they're pointing the finger and judging Jesus' disciples because they didn't keep all of their traditions. And Jesus said to them, okay, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. That was, you know, in the Ten Commandments. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So Jesus knew that they had a practice. There was a an element of the legal tradition that said, if you have certain things and you want to dedicate them to the Lord, you call them korban, you declare them that they are dedicated to God. And what they would do, and sometimes you'd keep them until the Lord or the temple or the synagogue or somebody had need of them, but they were, they were dedicated to God. So what they would do is they would just korban everything in the house, all their money and everything, they'd go, it's all God's. So when their parents would come and have need of something, and it was obviously, it was a responsibility of the younger people to take care of the older people. And the older I get, the more I value that tradition. But, you know, they would say, sorry, mom, sorry, dad, you have a need. Boy, everything we have is pretty much spoken for. We've given it to God. We've dedicated it to him, so we can't give it to you. And he knew their hearts. And he said, you know, you have these great traditions. And he said, so many of your traditions are things that are actually violating the basic laws of God. And, and so he, he said, you're hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Wow, what an indictment. A hypocrite who does the right things, but whose heart is far from God. A person who teaches people tradition rather than and even contrary to what God says equating tradition with the revealed word of God or maybe even elevating tradition above the word of God. Jesus often 
questions people on what they do with their money. Talks about it more than almost anything else. And as it was here for these people, it's so it is for us today too, how we spend our money, what we do with our money and God's money is a major barometer as to the health of our heart. And that's really the point that he's driving home. He's saying, you guys have all your traditions and all your rituals and you talk a good game, but your heart is so far from God. Why? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And look at the games you're playing with your money. Look at how you're taking the things that you have and you won't even give it to your parents who need it. Taking care of your family is a responsibility. And by the way, it's, it's a responsibility that God equates with taking care of him and his church. He, he lays it out. He says that if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an infidel. And so what he was saying, and in the context, he was talking about older people not taking care of them. And, and so he's saying to them, look at you guys. You have your traditions, but your heart isn't in it at all. And through your traditions, you're using it as a hypocritical excuse to hog everything up for yourselves. And I believe it to this day that if we look at what we do with our money as individuals, as a church, we'll find out where our heart really is. We'll find out what's really important to us. We can talk all we want about what we value and what we care about and what we think about. But ultimately, if we don't put our money where our mouth is, then our heart is betrayed as being something that's just hypocritical. It's just phony. It's not right. It's one of the reasons why in our church recently, as a board, we made the decision to greatly increase our commitment to missions. It's not that we have extra money. We don't. We're bringing in the same amount of money we always have in the last year since I've been here. But we felt like we need to take what we have and show what's valuable to us, what's important. And so we've increased that commitment, not, not at all so then God will make our church rich. Number one, he doesn't guarantee that. Number two, we don't want that. But what we want is to make sure that where we're investing is in something where, that's where our heart ought to be, that we want to increase that commitment that we're making. And, and that's what Jesus was nailing them on because oh, they would do great religious things. They would do their righteousness before men. You've seen it. We've been reading about it. And yet, when it came right down to it, he nailed them in an area where they didn't want anybody messing with them, and that was in how they handled their money. And they managed to do things that would get them tax write-offs, and at the same time would allow them to not have to take care of their own parents, who had raised them, who had taken care of them. And, and so Jesus just nails them right at the heart, and he does that to me once in a while. He'll do it to you, too, if you listen, because it's just a great way of seeing where your heart is. What are you doing with your stuff? What are you doing with your finances? When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, listen, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what's come out of the mouth, that defiles a man. And the disciples came, do you know the Pharisees were kind of offended when you said that? <laughs> he said, I don't care. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Leave them alone. Ignore them. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And Peter answered and said, So what are you talking about? And Jesus said, 
Are you also still without understanding? You guys don't get it either. Don't you yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? <laughs> Just runs right through. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. He's not saying that there was something even wrong with their traditions, but he said, you guys have it all wrong. You're so paranoid about what goes into your mouth. Oh, what am I eating? How am I preparing it? How is this going to happen? But he said, that isn't what defiles someone. And it's amazing. It's true. The way the body is designed, it's incredible what you can put in your mouth and how it just all gets mixed up together and comes back out. Our bodies have the capabilities of absorbing all kinds of things that you'd think would be really dangerous, but somehow, in some way, it works out. And, you know, we ritually kind of wash our hands. We never, and it's a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. But the fact is, if you looked under a microscope at what's on your spoon, what's on your plate, what's on your tongue, what's on, on your hands after you wash them, what's on that food, you would, ah, you know, it's just like, all it is is just a microscopic fear factor, you know, the second stunt. It's just, wow, it's so gross. But we feel better. It's just like people, you know, if you're like me, when you wash your hands, you turn on the hot water. But I think most people know that hot water that's coming out of the tap is not going to kill the things that are going to hurt you. Not at all. You can use cold water and it's going to be just as effective. You'd have to have the water so hot and put your hands under it so long that you'd burn your skin in order for washing with hot water to do you any good. Now, uh, antibacterial soap will do some good, and it's good for you. It'll probably keep you from having a cold. But what he's saying here is you're so obsessed with that. Some of you guys are all of your ritual stuff, and it's what goes in. And what does what go in end up turning into? It all turns into the same thing. But he says, understand this. What's in your heart? And I'll tell you what it is. It's what comes out of your mouth. And he goes, you have all this stuff in your heart, and you're not even worrying about it. And you're worrying about some germs that are just going to pass down through your digestive system and and end up being expelled by your body, and yet, well, it's kind of like people who freak out and they want their kids to scrub up really good before a meal, and then they eat the meal, and then they want them to scrub up afterwards, and then make sure you get your bath, and then they let them go turn on the TV and watch garbage. They let them go to the theater and look at junk. They sit there and talk to their kids about gross things or talk in front of their kids about things that kids should never have to hear about. And it's not just, I'm not just talking about, oh, evil, sexy movies or something. Even the news and the newspapers and things like that so often can be junk that's being put into our minds. Sending your kids to a school where they're getting their heads filled with garbage. And there are some of those things that can't be avoided. But at the same time, Jesus's point is, look, make the important things the big deal. Worry about your heart. The other stuff, it passes very quickly. And if you put the wrong stuff in, it even goes out faster and smoother. But he, at the, <laughs> sorry, but you can edit that out of the tape. Um, but he goes, the things that go into your heart and it comes out of your mouth, the things that are reflected in your life, that's what corrupts people. It's that garbage that you don't think twice about it. You wouldn't eat that kind of stuff. 
but you put it in your ears and you allow it to remain in your heart and you read about it and you're entertained by it and you're tainted by it and it affects your heart in such a way that it's going to come out. And a good lesson for all of us. And then we have the story of the Syrophoenician woman and we covered this passage through verse 28 on Sunday morning so you can get the tape. Basically, this woman of faith who was a Gentile, Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon and her daughter was demon-possessed and we see how Jesus ministered to her first by ignoring her when she called him, you know, the son of David when she tried to act like a Jew and operate by the formula that she had had before. But then as Jesus continued to allow her to cry out to him and as she then began to argue with him, we saw on Sunday how he taught her to first be honest, to, to say, okay, forget the son of David stuff. Help, help, I need your help. And we need to come to him and be honest. And then we saw how she came to him, not just honestly, but she had to humble herself. She had to realize that even if he's, if it's kind of embarrassing and he's calling me a dog and things like that, you know, she kept coming, and that was incredible. And, and she came fervently. She desired it strongly. And we're told that a fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. And, and then she came persistently. She kept at it. She kept coming. And so Jesus says of this Gentile woman, great is your faith. You can have whatever you want. Great, great story. Verse 29, Jesus left from there, started hanging around the Sea of Galilee, proceeding around it, and went up on the mountain and sat down. Great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. God, wouldn't you have loved to have seen that, to be there? Can you imagine? And, you know, a bunch of crippled, you know, people around his feet, it's not that much different today. I don't know about you, but for me, it was my own lameness that caused me to realize I needed him. And to see that sight, you can call them whatever you want. If you want to be politically correct, call them that, you know, people, we have all those terms that refer to them. But rather than dispute that, realize that anyone who has an infirmity, anyone who comes up short, anyone who has an ailment, anyone who is, who is disabled or physically challenged or whatever, Jesus goes, come on. And he was healing them all. And he's not through doing that. And someday, oh, I have some friends who have been with severe disabilities for a long time. I, I have one friend, Jeff Pfeiffer, who ever since he was a little kid, his mom's umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck and he's been in a wheelchair and, and it's difficult, very difficult for him to talk. But you can train yourself to listen to him. He's a very intelligent guy, has a complete heart, but most of his life, people treat Jeff like he's just not even there. Or they think that he doesn't understand just because he doesn't have the communication skills. And I've watched him. People come up to him and they start to talk and patronize him. And then I had people at Calvary who would come up and they'd be, Jeff would be hanging out with me and they'd come up and go, Jeff, remember me, remember me. And they'd go look at me and go, he doesn't understand a word I'm saying, does he? And walk on and he dealt, deals with that every day of his life. 
And he has people from, you know, these faith ministries come up and say, I command you, stand up and walk, and try to pull him out of his chair. And he's, he struggles every day. It's hard. It's difficult. He has pain. And, and, you know, he just can't wait for the day when he goes to be with the Lord. He knows while he's here, God has a purpose for him. And he ministers to people, and he shares his faith with people, and God uses him in an amazing way. But bottom line is this whole world, we all have lamenesses about us. We all have weaknesses. We all have disabilities. We can't do what we would like to do. The day is going to come when we end up at his feet. As he's in heaven, as we descend up to him, or when our life ends and he draws us to himself, to the Father, we'll be at his feet and he'll heal us all. We'll all be formerly disabled. We'll all be people who now have been enabled by him. I, I would have loved to have been there and seen him doing it, though. It is amazing. And so after he healed them, they glorified the God of Israel. The multitude marveled. When they saw people who had never talked before, now they were talking. People who had limbs missing, and now they had grown. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Sound familiar? Jesus again having compassion and saying, there's no place for these people to eat. And his disciples said to him amazingly, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? What? Don't you remember what he just did? He fed, you know, 15,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And now you're acting like it's never happened before. Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven loaves and a few little fish. <laughs> how often? When God has done so much in our lives, do we then look at our situation and then say, God can't do it this time. And you go, what? Don't you remember what he did for you before? Haven't you seen how he's worked in your life up to this point? Haven't you seen how he's worked in other people's lives? We just finished the leftovers from the last miracle, and now you think, yeah, that was great. Too bad he doesn't do it again. And, and their attitude was one of doubting. Jesus told the people to sit down. He took the loaves and fishes, gave thanks, broke them, gave them to his disciples. The disciples gave them to the multitude. They all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, so probably 12,000 people, assuming that each man would have at least one wife and one kid. And he sent away the multitude and got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala again. So he feeds 5,000. He's healing all these people. He heals this woman's daughter who was demon-possessed, and he calms the storm, let, comes walking on. I mean, all of these things happening. And how could anyone miss who Jesus was? But they did. Most of them did. And in chapter 16, it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. They had already been through this before. They're sneaking up again, maybe a different group of scribes and Pharisees. But they said, Can you show us a trick? And Jesus said, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today because the sky is red and threatening. That's that old red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky by morning, sailors give warning or something. He's saying, you can figure out the weather. 
Probably in those days, they could probably figure it out better than the weathermen today with all of our technology. But he said, you hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. That's what he had said before. He said, you want to see a sign? I'll show you a sign. The Son of Man is going to be buried for three days, and he's coming back to life. Like Jonah, who was in the whale, who ended up coming and getting spewed back out of the whale. A lot of people, by the way, take this to understand that Jonah actually died when he was in the whale and, and came back to life. And I personally don't see it from the text, but a lot of good people think that and really doesn't change it that much. Jesus here is just telling them, you want to see a trick? Just wait till you kill me and then see what happens. Because I'm not going to do anything else for you. His miracles were always because he was moved with compassion, not because he was challenged to perform signs and wonders. And it's one thing that today is some of the signs and wonders movement, which it seems like they're kind of dying out a little bit. With John Wimber made a, one of the uh, initial pastors of the vineyards made a big deal about signs and wonders, taught a sign uh, class on it at Fuller Seminary, wrote a book on it and everything. And then when he got sick and died, I think it's kind of settled down. But the, his basic notion was we need to do signs and wonders so people will come and see the truth. But Jesus, as we see him most of the time, that wasn't what he was doing signs and wonders for. In fact, he was healing people and telling people not to tell anybody. He was moved with compassion. He wasn't performing tricks. You know, if I was Jesus and the Pharisees came to me, you know, they would say, show us a sign, show us a sign. I'd go, okay, poof. And they'd turn into frogs. Rabbit, rabbit, okay, no more sign. But he just, no, he does his stuff because he cares about people. And he didn't use them to be mean. He didn't wipe out his enemies. But he was moved with compassion and his godness just kept leaking out. And that's basically what was happening. And so then the disciples came to the other side and they forgot to bring bread with them. I mean, you kind of get used to it when he keeps multiplying it. And, and sometimes we can see God provide for us miraculously so much that we just stop preparing ourselves. We just think, oh, God will take care of me. It's true. Many times we've probably all experienced it where because of our own irresponsibility or lack of preparation, we find ourselves in a situation where we need a miracle and God gives it to us. But then if we start to count on it, sometimes that's not what he wants us to do. I know there have been times when I've been so busy and all of a sudden at the last second, I remember times over at Calvary where I remember one time Romain was on vacation and he forgot to ask somebody to teach his Bible study. And they called me and they go, Dave, Romain's Bible study's in the sanctuary. They already finished worship. They need somebody to teach it. I guess Romain didn't get anybody. So I'm running to the sanctuary, flipping my Bible open and preparing a study. And actually, it was pretty good. I mean, they still sell that tape. And, I, and it was, <laughs> and it was, I was going, man, this is pretty good, but you know, as soon as I would start to go, you know, I think I'll try that next week. I mean, I'm just going to kick back, maybe go fishing or something and go for a motorcycle ride. And when it's time for me to teach my Bible study, I'm sure God will give it to me. But, you know, that kind of flakiness he doesn't reward. He will bail, bail us out when we need it, but he doesn't want us to rely on it. It's the exception. So they figured, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Because Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they thought, 
Oh man, we didn't bring bread. He must be, he's taught leaven. It must be because we don't have bread. He, they didn't get it. And Jesus knew what they were saying. And he said, oh, ye of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Don't you yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? The seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I'm not talking to you about bread? I can make bread all I want. But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they go, oh. They understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus is saying, it's like leaven. It's like sin. You allow it into you, and it grows and expands, and it takes over everything. He talked about leaven before in the parables last week. We saw that. But he was saying, if you buy into what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing doctrinally, oh, it'll destroy you. That sin will expand. So what was he talking about? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were hypocrites. They were phonies. If you allow yourself to be phony, it's like leaven. It's going to spread. It's going to rise. It's not going to go away. Not only that, they were questioning. They were desiring for you know, him to do tricks. And same thing. If we become focused on that and on the external. They were also legalists. They were trying to put people under a rigid system that went way beyond what the word of God said. He says, be careful of this stuff. Don't allow it to creep into your lives. Good advice. Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Good question, question that we'll all be asked someday. Who's Jesus? Who do you say he is? And when he asked that, they started saying, well, you know, some people say that you're John the Baptist, crazy as that sounds. Some Elijah, a little less far-fetched, because Malachi said that Elijah was going to come. And, and the whole, you remember the whole situation of John the Baptist, you know, as far as was he Elijah, wasn't he, and, and all of that. And others say you're Jeremiah. Seems like you're bummed all the time, crying, and so they're thinking maybe you're Jeremiah, come back. Or one of the other prophets. But Jesus said, okay, that's what people say, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, or literally the son of God, the living one. That's who you are. The Christ, the Messiah, the one who fulfills the prophecies, the one who was promised to come. And you are God. You're not only the Messiah, but you're the son of the living God, the son of God, the living one. That's who you are. You're from him. You're identified with him. A great confession by Peter here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means the son of in uh, Syriac or Aramaic. And, and so Simon was actually Peter's given name, and his dad was named Jonah. So he said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. This isn't something that you know just because I told you. God, my Father, is revealing this to you through the Spirit, and that's a good thing. But he said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you're Peter. Now, 
The name Peter, well, we'll go ahead and read the rest of the verse. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a controversial passage of scripture, obviously. The Catholic Church has taken this to mean that Jesus at this point told Peter, you are the foundation of the church. You are the rock. You're the rock. I'm, Jesus, remember the name Peter in the Greek Petros, which means rock, was a name that Jesus gave to Peter. We see that in John chapter 1. His name was Cephas and, and, uh, or Simon, and Jesus named him Peter or Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. Petros is the Greek word for rock. So he saw something solid in Peter and said, this is who you are. So the Catholic Church takes this and says, see, upon this rock, Peter, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And what you, you, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And they build up this whole doctrine that Peter was the first pope, that he was given the opportunity to have all the authority in the church, and that, you know, the succession of popes came from Peter and he passed it down. And whoever is the bishop of Rome or the pope was the person who wielded that power, who had that control. And then they built on that the idea of papal infallibility, that he can speak ex cathedra, that what he says, if he says this is the truth, then it's the truth. He can create doctrine. He can, and that's what it's all about. And, that, and that's their position. And I don't blame them, I don't fault them completely, because when you read this, it sounds like at least, hey, Peter, your name is Rocky, and it's on this rock that I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against it, and I'll give you, that's personally, that's singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, obviously, the extent to which the Catholics take this isn't correct, because we didn't see everyone else bowing down to Peter in the early church even. I mean, you remember over in Acts when they had the church council in Acts 15, Peter had one idea, but they actually went with James. James seemed to be the head of the church at that time. You remember Paul when he talked about in Galatians about confronting Peter to his face when Peter was being a hypocrite. You don't do that to the Pope. Obviously, God wasn't giving him some amazing authority also, but the question is, okay, what is the rock? Now, there are people who teach that these are two different words, the word Petros for Peter and the word Petra for rock. And they say that Petros means a little rock and Petra means a big cliff. And if it were that simple, that'd be great. It would explain a lot. But there are a couple of problems with that. I'm not saying that that's completely wrong, but Petros and Petra are the same word in the Greek. It's just that Petros with the O-S is in the masculine. The main word, the way the word is always used as a rock is always Petra, which is the feminine. In Greek, different objects are either masculine or feminine. It's illogical. You don't say, well, what, what's so feminine about a rock? But that's not it. It's just what they do linguistically. So all it is is the name Peter is the masculine version of the same word that means rock. Now, 
there are some places in Homer, for instance. In the Bible, there's never this supposedly that Petros is a little rock and Petra is a big rock. There's no instance in the scripture where that's the case. In, in every case, um, you know, when it uses Petros, the masculine, it's a proper name. It's the only place in much of Greek where you find it even spelled that way. Um, whenever the Bible's talking about a rock, it's usually Petra. But, or there are some other Greek words for rock as well. But there are, like in Homer, sometimes it seems like when he used rock, when he used Petra in the masculine, Petros, that he was referring to a piece off of a larger rock, and that's where some commentators get that idea. Here's the problem with it, though. Jesus, when he spoke with, with his disciples, spoke in Aramaic. That was the tongue that they actually used. They weren't speaking Greek all the time. And in Aramaic, the word Cephas, Sepha, it's the same, masculine or feminine. So Petras, Petra, the distinction was put in by the people who translated this into Greek, and it very well may be legitimate. God may have inspired them to do it that way. But when Jesus said it, the play on words was he was using the exact same word for Peter's name and for the rock that was the testimony. So it, it's not a clear-cut thing where you go, obviously he's talking about two different rocks. No, it does seem that way, certainly. And we see Peter didn't fulfill the role of a pope. But it's not, we need to be careful not to say more than what really makes sense from the scriptures. I don't think that's easy. There are basically three ideas as to what the rock is. Upon this rock, what's he talking about? The first idea is the Catholic idea that it's Peter. By the way, there are plenty of theologians who believe it's Peter and they aren't Catholics and they don't take it to the Catholic extreme. And their attitude, their approach to it is, hey, Peter was the first guy that got to present the gospel. Acts chapter two, he preached the first sermon. And so in a way, he was the first one that got to do it. Preached to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. And then in Acts chapter 10 in Cornelius' house, again, Peter got to be the first guy. So he preached the gospel first to the, to the Jews. He preached it first to the Gentiles. So if it is Peter, he's not the Pope. It's just he did have a unique role in that. And, and that's a possibility. Second possibility is, and this is the one that probably the majority of conservative scholars take, and that is that he's talking about the confession itself. He's not saying, Peter, on you I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail. But he's saying, no, on this confession. That you, when you identify me as thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, you understand who I am, and it's this confession that I'll build my church on. And that has merits to it. But ultimately, there's too much other scripture that refers to Jesus being the rock, that refers to him being the foundation. Paul said, there is no other foundation that can be laid except Jesus Christ. And then over in 1 Peter, Peter himself, Rocky, the first pope, he begins to talk about Jesus as the stone that the church is built on, 1 Peter chapter 2. And so when I read that, I think, I don't think he was talking about Peter. I don't think he was talking about Peter's confession. I think he was talking about himself. Now, you don't get that linguistically. Any of the three would be possible linguistically. But I'm thinking that maybe Jesus said, Simon, remember, I gave you the name Peter. You're a rock. But upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell, hell won't prevail against it. Jesus is the rock. He's the one the church is built on, and that's why the gates of hell can't prevail against it. So you can choose any of the three of those. 
If you believe that Peter's the first pope and was infallible, then I'll be mad at you. But other than that, if you want to believe that it's Peter because of, he brought the gospel first to the Gentiles and to the Jews, if you want to believe that it's the confession, you'll have a lot of good company. Um, if you want to believe that it's Jesus, then again, you have the right to be wrong if you don't think that. But I, uh, that's what I think it is anyway. So you can just pick any one of them you want, but I'm smarter than you are. No, just kidding. Um, what does this mean when he says, I'm going to build my church, the ecclesia, those who are called out, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Nothing is going to destroy what God's going to do, what Jesus is going to do through his church. And he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What's the key of the kingdom of heaven? I mean, if you're just thinking simply what the obvious thing would be, a key is something that opens a door that lets you in somewhere. The key to the gates of the kingdom of heaven is to tell people how you get there. Jesus Christ is the door. He's the way, the truth, the life. And so he's offering to them, the disciples, and to us, the opportunity to actually turn that key, to lead someone to the very gates of heaven. And, and then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Very common expression in Judaism just refers to authority. It just refers, and, and really, when you think about the apostles, now, this was kind of addressed to Peter at this point, but a couple chapters later in Matthew 18, you're going to see that all the disciples, he says, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and so on. It may be referring to their apostolic authority. Remember, it was the apostles through the Holy Spirit working in them who ultimately not only wrote the scriptures, but they were involved deciding which book of the Bible should be canonical and which shouldn't. They made certain decisions in church councils and things like that, doctrinal decisions. So it's partly, it's probably a reference to that because over in Matthew 18, it seems to be in the area of church discipline. When, when the church takes an action to, to discipline someone and to address that problem. And so it has to do with some sort of apostolic authority, but it's also authority that I think we all have as we share the gospel, as we explain to people the keys to the kingdom, then all he's saying is what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. It's what you're doing here, it's going to last for eternity. When you tie someone in with Jesus or when you loose someone from their sins, they're loosed in heaven. Their standing is in heaven, their citizenship in heaven because you bring them through those gates. So then he told them, don't tell anybody yet. It's, this stuff's too confusing. Don't be making a big deal about me being the Messiah. It's not time yet. Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now we're going to see repeatedly in the book of Matthew, Jesus saying, guys, you need to understand. We're going to pretty soon in a few chapters, we're going to be heading towards Jerusalem and they're going to, they're going to punish me and they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead. And it's like they heard the kill part and they didn't even think the resurrection. Oh, probably like Mary and Martha, oh yeah, we know someday you rise from the dead, but that's a long ways off. Here, as he told them about his death and resurrection, Peter speaks up, took him aside. I like that. Peter, you know, he had just been given the keys to the kingdom. Hey, the, you know, you're the rock, you're the one. And, and so he thinks, Jesus, this is a little weird. Come here, let's talk about this. And he pulls Jesus aside. He goes, Jesus, I don't want the other disciples to hear about this, but 
no way, this isn't going to happen. He said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Jesus, you're teaching something crazy here. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to let anybody kill you for one. And Jesus turned as he walked away from Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Talking to Peter, talking to Satan, maybe both, saying, you don't understand. Peter, what you're saying, you don't get it. That's exactly what Satan is trying to do to tell me that I don't have to die. That, no, it's not going to happen to you. You're fine. You're okay. And he's going, that's so offensive to me. Because this is, for this I was born and for this came I into the world. This is why I'm here. It's what it's all about. Don't tell me I'm not going to do it. Don't call me Lord and say no way. Peter was pretty proud of himself after his partial walking on the water. And then after in front of all the disciples, he pipes up and, and Jesus goes, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Now, Jesus is saying something that he doesn't understand. And Peter's trying to go, Jesus, remember, I walked on water too. And remember me? Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to me. Your father told it to me. Hey, he talks to both of us, man. And I'm telling you, I think I'm hearing from him now. He's saying, no, don't do this. And Jesus said, get out of here, man. That's the enemy. That's the enemy that's trying to tell you that I don't need to do this. Jesus said to it, so now Peter's all embarrassed. The disciples are all, you know, Peter's back in his place. And Jesus said to the disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Jesus said, it's always been for you about how to get life, how to save your life, how to protect yourself. But he said, in my economy, when I lose my life, that's going to give you life. And you will discover in a different way that as you pour your life out as well, as you take your cross up, as you head to your death, that's going to be the key to life for you as well. If you spend your life trying to save yourself, you're going to be lost. But if you try to see how many ways you can pour your life out, you can give up your who you are and not hang on to your own self-protection. You try to gain your life, literally your soul, your suke, you'll lose it. And as I've said before, people who focus all of their attention on trying to understand themselves, they don't become psychological, you know, psychologically brilliant people. They go crazy. They become patients, not doctors. The doctors end up becoming patients. Because if you try to figure yourself out and you see yourself as the center of the universe, well, you're in for some trouble because the answer is not here in people, Jesus is saying. It's not here in this life at all. It's not what it's all about. The great tragedy isn't to lose your life here. The great tragedy is to lose your soul. And so finally, well, verse 28 really goes with chapter 17. So we will um, take that next week. Let's pray. God, as we've been walking through this gospel of Matthew, 
The story as he tells just what it was like to be with you, to walk with you, to, to have conversations with you, listening to you, seeing you walking on the water, seeing you performing these incredible miracles, teachings that blew everyone's mind, feeding masses of people from small fragments of food. Wow, what it must have been like. And we're so glad, Lord, that you prompted these men to record these stories so we could see them and, and meet you through it. Lord, though we do believe that you still want to walk with us today and in, in some ways in a much greater way than you did with them because we have your Holy Spirit inside of us. God, help us to believe you for everything, to have faith in you, to trust you. Help us to have compassion on the multitudes the way you do to do your work, whatever you call us to do. And when you call us to step out of the boat, help us to come, help us to step, help us to keep our eyes on you, not on those around us, not on the waves that are being tossed. God, feed us and help us to feed others with the bread of life, that which provides our true life to us. Lord, continue to teach us day by day what it means to hang out with you, to be touched by you, to sit at your feet, experience healing from you. Lord, we need it. And we pray for it in your name. Amen.